Daniel chapter 2. And we're not going to get quite as far as I had hoped this morning, but that's okay. Um, Daniel 2. We'll remember that last week, we just by way of kind of introduction and refreshing our memory, uh, we had Nebuchadnezzar having this dream, and he can't recall the dream, or at least can't recall it fully. But he calls the wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians, all those people uh, to come and give him not only the interpretation, not only what does this dream mean, but to come and tell him what the dream was. And uh, it seems as if he wants that, that giving of the dream, either because he can't remember it or because he's looking for confirmation that they actually are giving a proper interpretation. Um. And so we looked at that and we looked at the impossibility of that task. And we looked at how there's a difference between, and they even stated in verse 11, uh, it is a rare thing that the king requires and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods which dwell, which dwelling is not with flesh. So here are these wise men and these astrologers and all, all of these guys over here. And they're saying, this is an impossible task. And the God that is disassociated, the idols, those things that we may worship that are disassociated with their creation and the difference that we have as believers with a God who is near and concerned. Here we are giving thanks this morning for those things that God has heard on, on the prayers that we have, we have lifted up on behalf of others and his faithfulness and his concern to the extent that he would give his son, Jesus Christ. And so we, we draw drew that contrast between the two and we took that and, and we said hey if like paul in romans 1 16 i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of god unto salvation if that's what we have if this is what we truly have this intimate relationship with our creator are we ashamed are we taking that truth and are we engaging people with it and that's sort of where we left off we're going to pick up this morning in verse 14, where we encounter Daniel for the first time in this uh, interaction regarding Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it says, then Daniel answered uh, with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men. <clears throat> Verse 15, and he answered, and he said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. So we have some indication here that there is some separation. There's about a year of time between chapter 1 and chapter 2, like we said last week. And within that year, Daniel and me, uh, Azariah and Mishael and Hananiah uh, are not they, they don't seem to be big players in Babylon yet. And I, I bring that up to say that this is something that God is using to bring about his purpose. Okay, this is providence at play. This is providence being uh, exercised on God's behalf. Okay, turn with me, if you will, for just a moment. Hold your place in Daniel 2. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. And at the end of this chapter, and in the beginning of the next chapter in the book of Isaiah, we find a, th this prophecy given by Isaiah about a man 
who is going to be king in Babylon. But that's about 100 years future from, from this time. And so Isaiah 44, verse 28, we're just going to read the one verse, but this is, it continues into chapter 45. Thus saith of Cyrus, and this is God speaking, this is what he says of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the holy temple thy foundation shall be laid. And we know that as we get to the end, and we talked about this, that Daniel, at the end of Daniel chapter 1, it says that he remained until the time of Cyrus, even to the first year of King Cyrus. So we see this entire empire rise and fall within the lifespan of one person. And here we see this, this uh, providence of God to bring about his plan and purpose in the release, the, the establishment, and then ultimately the release and the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple through Daniel and his friends. Daniel and, the, and his, those three, apparently, they're not established any position in the empire yet, but God is providentially using Nebuchadnezzar and, and this dream that he's had to bring about his establishment. The grace, the, the ability that Daniel was given, and we read about this in Daniel 1.17, he was given the ability to interpret dream, visions and dreams. That was his special, and it's called out specifically of him. So they bring this to pass, and, and we see all of these things happening. Okay, the providence is at play, and we can't miss that. And I don't want to uh, make too, too much of it, so to speak, but providence is at play. God is in control of what's happening here. We sort of introduced that several weeks ago with the introduction to the book, but don't miss it. It's consistently at play through the book. Even as we get into the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we find that providence, God's purpose, his, his oversight of the events of mankind is at play. And so a question is, we, is we, what does providence have to do with you or with me? Here's Daniel, and he, he's been faithfully serving as God has told them to. And we looked at this in Jeremiah, who was a prophet to Judah during this time that they were about to go into exile in Babylon. And he says, when you get to Babylon, this is what God wants you to do. Serve those in, uh, under whose captivity you are in. And not only that, pray for their peace. So here is Daniel apparently doing that, serving where he had been established, where he had been uh, appointed to serve and to have oversight of whatever he was, had oversight of, and he's faithfully doing it. And the question is this, are we willing to trust providence? Because God is still in control. God is still bringing about his plan and his purpose around us and through us and in us. And though we may not see it or we may not identify with it, so to speak, are we willing to trust that this is what God is accomplishing? We looked at last week just briefly, right, that in Romans, here we are, we're called according to the purposes of God, and we know that everything is working for our good because that's the case. And are we willing to acknowledge that no matter what the circumstance looks like, how, no matter how we may interpret that, 
whether it's a hard thing or whether it's something that is easy to endure, am I acknowledging the providence of God? Am I acknowledging his hand in my life, in me, through me, and around me? Because if we're honest, I would suggest that there are probably those things, those providences we don't want to acknowledge. That I would rather not engage in. That I would rather not. Providence at play. In uh, verse, uh, let's read a few more verses here in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 16, then Daniel went into the king and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Daniel's the only one that says, listen, I will give you the meaning and the interpretation of the dream. And he asked for time to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar is sympathetic to that. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, better known as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But here they are, his three cohorts, and he goes and he makes this thing known to them. And he says, this is what's going on. And he enlists the, part- the partnership of his friends. And they're all in this together, praying for God's mercy in the circumstance. They're praying for God's mercy in the circumstance. I, I want to talk about uh, prayer just briefly here. Turn with me to John chapter 1 which may not be, you know, like the seminal passage in regard to prayer. But I think that it establishes for us something very important. Here we are, and we've kind of, as a church, we've kicked off our prayer fellowship. And things are, we're sharing requests, and we're praying, and you see the little, uh, you, you know, people are praying because they're responding to that message. And there's some engagement there. And, and hopefully we take the time when we have the availability and we can do so to interact with that person directly, but there's a reason that we pray. There's a reason that we are established in this. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So in those three verses, we learn a few things about God that are extremely important. First, in the beginning was the Word. He was self-existent. It's just the same as God telling Moses, I am that I am. In the beginning was the Word. There was nothing else with him. There was nothing that established him. There's nothing that created him. He existed. I am that I am. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no, and, and those statements are important as we get down to verse 14 and we begin to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so God is self-existent. The same was in the beginning. All things were made by him. And there wasn't anything made, there isn't anything that exists that wasn't made by him. And as we go to Genesis chapter 1 and we look at how God created, we look at how he, from nothing, spoke everything into existence with just the word of his power. Not an organization of matter, not an not a organization or bringing chaos into order, but from nothing, 
to everything that we know today as it is. The power of prayer exists not in who we are. It exists because of who God is. Right? When we're praying, when we're interceding for somebody on their behalf, you get on there, you type your little message, you send it off, and then a few seconds later, it pops up in the prayer fellowship prayer chain. Here it is, and we're praying for it. And the reason we pray for it is because we know, unlike these here in Babylon, that our God exists and that he is powerful and can answer prayer, that he does answer prayer. He is the creator of the universe, and therefore the power, the trust that we have in the answer of that prayer is linked to who he is. Who he is. Our faith, turns me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, our faith in prayer is based upon what he has done and his compassion for us. Okay, so the power of prayer is rooted, it's established in who God is. Our faith in it is based upon what he has done and his compassion. We could also say it this way, the, the faith that we have in prayer is based upon the proven faithfulness of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So there's no wavering. And we know that here is Jesus Christ, and we know that he's been here. We know that he was in all ways tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. We know that while he was here, the Bible says that he took on flesh, that he humbled himself so that he might die on the cross in our place. We had this great high priest, this intermediary, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Let us therefore hold fast our profession. We don't have to wonder because God has already proven it. He's already made it sure. He's confirmed his compassion. He's confirmed his concern. He's confirmed his redemptive promise to all of mankind in Jesus Christ. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, as a result of that, as a result of the truth of what God has done, what he has finished in Jesus Christ, let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come into his presence seeking help on behalf of others on behalf of ourselves, seeking his mercy in time of trouble. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I had an interesting conversation with someone earlier this week, and, and we were talking about prayer. And this person's not a believer uh, by any means. And, and we as we're discussing prayer, what I, basically what I said is, I'm going to pray for you. And he kind of gives me this, you know, he, he was thankful. And I said, you need to understand that when I say I'm going to pray for you, that is the most that I can do. And he's like, he's kind of an intellectual guy. So he's like, why? 
Why is that the most that you can do for me? I said, well, in this circumstance, I can't change any of it. I can't come alongside you and, and help you in any way, shape, or form. But I have a direct line to the creator of the universe who is concerned about what's happening here. And just as he did with uh, the, the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel, as Elijah prays, he says, listen, Lord, consume this sacrifice so that they may know that there is a God in Israel. God in his zeal, for lack of better terms, to reveal himself to you, to open up your heart to the possibility that he exists and that he is concerned for you, may just answer this prayer. I said, it's the greatest thing I can do. I believe that he is the creator of the universe. I believe that I have interaction with him directly, that he hears and that he is concerned. With that faith, the least that I could do is not pray for you. The most that I can do is on your behalf, come before his throne of mercy to find help in time of need. And that's the faith that we're exercising. That's the trust that we are putting in God when we share these requests and when we pray for them. The most that we can do is bring them before God. Now we may and I'm not trying to disconnect this, that we may be able to be the answer to that prayer, so to speak. We never have that excuse, well, I prayed for it, therefore I shouldn't have to do anything with it. But if we trust that this is who God is, that he is the creator of the universe, that he is in fact concerned with his creation, you and I, and that our faith is based upon his proven compassion for us and his desire to move on our behalf, to make himself known and his glory great, we would pray. We would engage in that. Daniel goes to his friends and he says, listen, partner with me in this. We have this partnership in prayer. He goes to uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he makes the thing known to them, and he says, let's pray together. And what it becomes is a community expression of faith. When we as a church are praying together, it is a community expression of faith. It is the expression that we all together trust in God's... And all of these things we've been looking at. I'm not going to state it again. It takes too much time. We come together. It's a community expression of our faith. Let's look at a few things here. James chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 18. <clears throat> Again, probably not a seminal passage in regard to prayer. But along the lines that we're looking at this, when we look at James chapter 2, and it says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith. A lot of people can claim that they have faith. I trust in this, or I trust in that. These Chaldeans, these astrologers, these magicians that have already been before Nebuchadnezzar, they trust in something. We have faith in that. A man may say that he has faith. Anyone can make that statement. And another may say that I have works. I have something in my life that is indicative of what is in me. Jesus would say it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Show me thy faith without thy works, 
and I will show you my faith by my works. As it applies to prayer, we show our faith by exercising prayer. And I would encourage you not to do it secretly, if that makes sense. We want to show our faith to those that we are communicating with. This person, I could have prayed for him without him ever knowing that I was praying for him, and God would have not received any glory. He would have never known. I showed him my faith by praying for him, by praying with him. This is a confirmation. The community expression of faith, we're living it out. If we believe this, let's do it. In 1 Peter, turn with me a couple pages back, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. If we believe that God has, in fact, proven himself faithful, we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to pray, just as Daniel is praying, Lord, reveal the king's dream to me. Lord, whatever my need may be, whatever the concern that I have is, whatever it is, Lord, I'm going to humble myself. And what that statement, that humbling is, what that means is that no matter what the circumstance may be, however God responds to it, I'm receptive. As Jesus would say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to yield myself to whatever God may, however he may answer that prayer. Knowing that that is the best, that is the best answer I could have received. We're going to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, submit ourselves to the answer that he gives us, and we're going to cast all our care upon him. We're not going to fret about it. We're not, doesn't mean that we're going to stop praying for it necessarily. But we're not going to fret about it any longer. We're going to cast all our care upon him, knowing, and this is a statement of fact, is a statement of certitude, certitude that he cares for us. And we know that. We, we've pro- he's proven it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which Amber quoted for us this morning, did a very great job. I'm going to take a stab at it. If I'm wrong, you guys will all know. I can't. I've drawn a blank. Put myself on the spot. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Uh, Memory verse. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to cast myself upon the Lord, trusting that he is going to lead and guide and answer in accordance with his will so that he receives the glory and that he can work that for the best of everyone involved. Okay, we're praying for mercy. Daniel and his friends are praying for mercy. That word mercy, uh, it, it means compassion. It means engagement. Just as we have seen that God proves his compassion towards us. Verse 18 in Daniel 2. This is the prayer that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
So the request specifically is for mercy or compassion regarding the secret of the dream. In other words, God, give us mercy, give us the meaning of the dream and the interpretation. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about God's deliverance in one of two ways. He's either going to give you grace in the midst of the hardship, or he's going to deliver you from it. He's going to remove you from it or remove the hardship from you. One of the two ways. You could, this is both. Here they are in the midst of it, and they're given grace in the answer that they receive because they receive what they're asking. And in so doing, God removes from them the hardship that was before them. And let's just be honest and clear about it. The hardship was pretty severe. I mean, all the way back in in verse 5, the king answered, this is what's going to happen to Daniel and his friends. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your house shall be made a dunghill. It's literally life or death. They're trusting God with their life and asking for his mercy. We, this is the exercise of faith associated with prayer. And it's easier said than done, right? I mean, you know, when we're praying for somebody to to have a safe travel somewhere, that's that relatively easy. It's relatively non-consequential to us. I mean, we're, we're obviously concerned about it. We share the request, but it may not be life and death per se. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. When we pray for something that's perceived to be small, it's easy to say the Lord has this. When we are like Daniel and we're faced with the circumstance where we have to pray for something substantial, it's harder to say the Lord has this. Why? Because we're sinful. Because, because it's not our nature to trust God. We talked about it a little bit this morning, right? That here is God and he is represented in the rock that Moses struck and the water came out and we kind of examine that scene. And then on the other side, if that type is true, then the nation of Israel in their sinfulness represents the world around us. And we kind of broke that down a little bit. We talked about that. What insights may we have into that and into ourselves ultimately? And we had a nice discussion. We had some productive conversation about that. But we're casting our cares upon the Lord because we know that he cares for us. So Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be careful for nothing. Be anxious. Don't be worrisome. And the, the, the reason is this, because I've cast my cares upon the Lord. There's, there's a choice to be made. I can be anxious. I can worry about it. I can fret. I can stress. I can try to whatever that may be. But, but ultimately, what that is doing is saying that I somehow am no better than God. I know how this should turn out. I know how I want it to turn out. And that's the way that it should be. We divorce that prayer request from the humility that it has to be associated with. 
we make a God after our own image that will answer that prayer request in accordance with our own will. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Why with thanksgiving? Because we know. We already have the certainty that God is engaged in this and that he is answering it for the best for everyone involved so that he might receive the glory. And even if the answer is no, even if we're not delivered from that hardship, that circumstance, whatever it may be, we have the certainty that he's going to extend grace in the midst of it. Let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. In other words, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that we would not be stressed, that we wouldn't be worried, that we wouldn't be anxious. It doesn't make sense. But the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26.3, right? This was a memory verse last week. I shall keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on, focused on, rested. That's where it is always because he trusts in thee. When we look at this, the anxiousness and all of those things associated with it is gone because of our trust, because of our faith. And just as God has taken enough time to say, listen, this is the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and then confirm to us why it's okay to trust him because he is always faithful. We have that same testimony. Therefore, because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight that is so easily beset us, Hebrews 12. Everything that would hang us up, those things that would make us anxious, put them off. Here's Daniel, and that's what he's doing. And he's asking his prayer partners, his prayer warriors to join with him, just as we do in our fellowship when we ask for that prayer request. And I I hope that as we take this little bit of time to look at it, that we begin to say, yeah, this is a significant part of the coming together of the church. This is a significant part of our engagement with one another. Why? Because the most that I can do is bring this before the sovereign creator of the universe on your behalf. In the book of Esther, you remember in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 17, this decree has come down. Naaman has convinced the king that, hey, we got to get rid of the Jews. And uh, Mordecai comes to Esther in the night and he says, listen, you, who knows? This is why you were established in the position you're in. For such a time as this, he says. And Esther is fearful because if you are not invited in the king's presence, but you go in without the invitation, he either has to show mercy or you're put to death. And so she says, listen, Mordecai, I'll do it. But what you have to do is get everyone together, get all the Hebrews together, and they need to fast and they need to pray on my behalf. Because this is life and death. And in the end, she humbles herself and she casts herself upon the care of the Lord. And she says, whether I die or whether I am preserved, 
either way. It's okay, but I'm going to do this. If God has established me in this position, if this is the providence of God in my life, then I'm going to accept it. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Daniel is putting his trust in the Lord to reveal the dream to him, and he asks his prayer partners to partner with him, and they pray for the mercy of God in revealing that dream. And it is life and death. If you've read the chapter, you know. If you haven't read the chapter, you're about to know that God answers their prayer. He gives them the interpretation. He makes known unto them what the dream is. Let's read verse 19 through 23. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is the darkness and the light dwells with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made known unto me what we desired of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Daniel's response, his immediate response to the, to the answer of this prayer was worship. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I think, and this is my opinion, that there is a disconnect for us as believers in some respects. There's a disconnect between who God is, and so we're talking about prayer, and in that same context, I know that he is the creator. I know that he is concerned and compassionate. I know that he is engaged in our creation, that he hears prayers and that he answers them. But there's this disconnect. And for us as believers, if there is a disconnect in that, it's probably in relation to our understanding of who God is. If I can be very blunt about it. Because we're surrounded by a world that would say that he doesn't exist or say that if he does exist, he's disengaged from his creation. Why? Because they don't want to be encountered with their sin. Because if God is real, if he's engaged with his creation, if he's revealed himself in scripture, then I have to do something with that truth. Romans 1 and 2 tells us all about that. And we studied that not too long ago. Seems like it wasn't too long ago. It was a long time ago. Okay. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 for just a moment. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find Isaiah in heaven, in, in, the, in the presence of God. And I want you to see what's happening in heaven. Because Daniel says that I, he blesses the God that is in heaven, the true and the living God. And he doesn't bless him. He doesn't worship him as a result of his earthly understanding. He worships him based on who he is. And who he's revealed himself to be. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, I'm going to begin actually in verse 2. Nope, I'm going to begin in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Okay, so don't miss that. He's high and lifted up. He is in a place of exaltation. 
He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's where he abides. And so he's in that place of honor. And it says, above it stood the seraphims. These are angelic beings, right? This is, they have a specific role. Not much more than that. And we're going to talk about this morning. And each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. Okay. It's not the picture of angels that we find most places. But here we are. Description of angels, what they look like. Verse 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We look at it and we see and we compartmentalize. We have this earthly disconnect. Woe is me. God's not here. Woe is me. God's unconcerned with this. Woe is me. Fill in the blank. When in reality, God is the creator of the universe. And it says that the earth is full of his glory. He is all present everywhere at one time. He is engaged. He is there in the midst of that. Turns me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. That means a lot. There's a lot. And I want you to know what the entire hosts of heaven are doing. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power. And riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lived forever and ever. This is the reality of who God is, and this is the proper response of all of creation, you and me included, to that reality. And I realize it's, it's easier said than done. But if my understanding, if my view of who God is, is so small that I feel like he's distant from me, that he's removed himself, that he's unconcerned with where I'm at, I need to inform from Scripture my understanding of God. I need to focus up on that. I need to engage in careful study of what he has revealed of himself. It will be confirming of our faith. It will be engaging to us. Daniel says, and he begins, blessed, worthy of praise. It carries the connotation, the idea of kneeling down, this prostration before who he is. Right? When, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? whenever Aslan shows up, what happens? They all take a knee. 
blessing worthy of praise, worthy of worship. And it includes all of who God is, just as we see the hosts of heaven and all of creation ultimately bowing down and declaring, worthy, worthy, holy, holy, holy. And he says there is wisdom and might. And if we look at the attributes of God, which is primarily how he's revealed himself in Scripture, by attributes, because he's infinite and we're finite. And so in his grace towards us, I'm convinced it's his mercy towards us, he gives us attributes that we can identify with. In his wisdom and might, he says, his transcendence, his not being subject to that which he has created. And I realize there's a lot encapsulated in that transcendence, but let's look at a few verses here. Psalm 62, Psalm 62, verse 11. You might just keep your finger in Psalms this morning. What I want to do is look at what Daniel praises God for specifically and hopefully open our eyes and our hearts just a little bit to the attributes for which God, he is praising God specifically. Isaiah 62, verse 11 says, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongs unto God. Not that it is part of who he is, that it belongs to him. He is the source. He is transcendent over it. There isn't anything that he would be subject to. Psalm 147, verses 4 through 5. He tells the number of the stars. He calls them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Not great, not big, infinite. And if we get into Matthew, let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew 6, 13. As Jesus is concluding the Lord's Prayer and this model of how we might interact with God by prayer, this is what he says. Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here is Jesus Christ, the incarnate God in the flesh, and he says, this is it. This is the glory, the power, it is his forever. Daniel worships God. He says, listen, you are transcendent. There is nothing that is, that is limiting you and your ability to hear and answer this prayer, and he blesses God as a result of that. And then he says that you are changing the times or the seasons, and, and there's probably more than one attribute that we could ascribe to this potentially whether it's God's sovereignty, or I've just put his omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness. That's what omnipotent means in, in word that isn't a word, all-powerfulness, right? Here he is. He's changing seasons. He's bringing to pass that which he chooses to bring to pass. And, and I don't think too hard on that. This is a statement about God's providence in some respects. And we've already, we looked at that last week, but 
Daniel praises him for that. Right here's the thing. And this is in direct relation to the revelation of that dream, to its interpretation, which we're not even going to get to today. And I'm, and I'm not going to go into it, but this is in direct relationship to the interpretation of that dream. And if you know what the dream is, that makes more, season, more, more sense. He's changing the times. He's changing the seasons. In Psalm 31, Psalm 31, verse 14 through 15, says, But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from them that persecute me. My time is in thy hand. It means whatever, whatever I'm going to experience, whatever life, quote unquote, life may bring, it is in your hands. Deliver me from mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Because he's able to. In Jeremiah chapter 27, just keep in mind, this is, uh, in many respects, directly related to the context in which we find Daniel. That Judah is here in exile, and, and Jeremiah, God's man on the scene, proclaiming this exile that is to come. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 through 7, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and out of my and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. God says, Listen, I've made everything and I've given it to whomever I saw fit. And he continues on and he says this, and now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field have I given to him to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of this land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. There's a statement about what God is doing here and his ability to bring it to pass. We looked at this pretty heavily when we introduced the book of Daniel, but here is God sovereignly exercising providence. This is, he's bringing this to be because the nation of, uh, excuse me, the, the kingdom of Judah has rebelled against them. And so he's bringing this to pass as a means of correction, as a means of bringing them back to himself. Daniel gives thanks and he rejoices at the fact that he says that God removes kings and he sets up kings. He is sovereign. There is no power, we would read in Romans 13, except that which God has established. No ruler, no government, no authority that isn't rooted in him. And it says in Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. By me, they do this or they do that. Not by their own authority, not by their own right, not by their own intellect or ability. By me by his establishment, by his decree. In Revelation 19, 
verse 16. Revelation 19, verse 16. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no king superior. There is no ruler above. There is nothing apart from him. Daniel continues on and he says, listen, I'm going to praise the Lord for his wisdom. Since he gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them with no understanding. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> For the Lord gives wisdom, and out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. It's his native tongue, so to speak. When God speaks, it is wisdom. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, as well as in one of first or second kings, I can't remember, Solomon in a vision encounters God and he says, God says, what will you ask of me, Solomon? And Solomon doesn't pray for wealth. He doesn't pray for power. He's, he prays for wisdom, specifically so that he may rule the nation of Israel well. That was his prayer. That was his request. And because God is wisdom, he is honored by that request. And he grants him that request. And he says, not only because, because you didn't ask for all these other things that the world would pursue, but because you asked for wisdom so that you might honor me, that you might glorify me in your rule, he says, I'm going to give you all the others as well. I'm going to give you wealth, and I'm going to give you power, and I'm going to give you prestige. And in 1 Kings, if you'll turn there with me, 1 Kings chapter 10, the result of this, just so that we understand that this happened, that God answered the prayer, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. The whole earth, all the other surrounding nations, the kings, they come to hear the wisdom that God had put in Solomon's heart. And in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if any of you lack wisdom, it says you can ask. You can ask of God, and he'll give it to you, and he doesn't upbraid, or he doesn't get after us. He doesn't chide us for requesting it. If any of us lack wisdom, we can ask. God is wisdom. He continues and he says, you are, Daniel says, you are a revealer of secrets. He that reveals the deep and the secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Now these two are maybe not, uh, it's one verse and it's describing that God's omniscience, that there isn't anything hid from him, that there is nothing removed from him. As, as David would say, listen, if I go into the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the depths of the sea, you are there. There's nowhere that I can hide from you. 
his omniscience, his all-knowingness. He's a revealer of secrets. He reveals the secret, this dream that nobody could, could reveal. And he gives it to Daniel. This is what the dream was. And he gives him the interpretation. This is what the dream means. Now here for you and I, this is where it gets a little bit personal. Because God may reveal to you and I, you know, seasons and, and hey, this is what's happening in the world. And we may have a clarity and an understanding about that. And I'm not discounting that by any means, but what I want to do is take this and say, look, let's look at the providence of God and his redemptive purpose for mankind throughout history. And how does this characteristic, this attribute of omniscience relate to that? How does it relate to you and me? How does it relate to the person that we have shared the gospel with that we want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ? In Hebrews chapter 4, let's turn there. Hebrews 4, verse 13. Statement of the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God in regard to our sin, in regard to what is within us. Jesus said, as he's correcting the Pharisees, he says, listen, it's not what, what comes into us. It isn't what we drink. It's not whatever we go, what goes in. That's not what's defiling us. He says, what's defiling us, what is proving and confirming our heart is that which comes out of us. It's a confirmation of what is really inside of us. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. The word manifest means to be exposed means to be exposed. There's nothing that is not exposed in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto him, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And we think to ourselves, listen, nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows I'm getting away with this, with A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Nobody knows, so it's okay. Listen, it's not about what we can get away with. It's about what is right and about what is wrong. And God says to you and I, listen, there is nothing secret. There's nothing that I don't know. There is nothing that you are doing that I don't already know about. There's no creature, you and me included, that is not manifest, openly exposed in his sight. And he says, to the extent to the extent that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Not only does he see the sin, he sees the reason, the heart, the motive behind it. And that for you and I should be something that we need to take pause and think about because those things, it may be something that's relatively good but why am I doing it? Am I doing it because it's a gratification of my flesh, because it's a pursuit of what I can see rather than a pursuit of faith in God? He knows. There's nothing hid. He's a revealer of secrets. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Turn there with me for a moment. It gets a little less pleasant. He says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
There's no exclusions here. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. We're going to answer for it. It's going to be exposed. It's going to be revealed. And not only that, I'm convinced that this judgment seat of Christ is in many respects a public trial. There's shame associated with it. Now, in, in, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about, he says, there's no other foundation laid except that which is laid in Christ Jesus, right? There's a, that's the foundation. And he says, every man needs to take heed, needs to be careful, needs to be watchful how he builds on that foundation. And we can build with different materials. We can build with hay, wood, and stubble, right? Hay, wood, and stubble. The thing common to all three of those is they all burn in the fire. He says, or you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And the thing that those have in common is they will abide through the fire. So here we have this foundation of Jesus Christ, and we can build as a believer with either kind of material. And when we stand before God and he says, listen, why were you building with hay, wood, and stubble here? You could have been building with things that would abide, the things that it's not a message about losing salvation. He says in that passage, we've built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Those things are going to be burned up. And he says, but that person won't be lost. They'll be delivered as through fire. So it isn't a statement of loss of salvation, but it's a statement about the judgment that we stand before Christ. The, the accountability that we have with God who is omniscient. It isn't, we never got away with it, even if we thought we did. He knows, and we are answerable for it. Psalm 139, really the whole psalm gets to the heart of this a bit. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou hast known my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understands my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset beside, behind and before and I laid and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. David just said, listen, this reality of knowing that I didn't get away with it, that God knows everything, blew my mind. It's too much. It's too, I can't attain unto it. And the reason that he blows his mind is because it's a very sobering truth. Whither shall I go from my spirit or whither shall I flee from my presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the depths of the sea, you're there. No matter where I go, if I can completely cover myself in darkness. Have you ever been in the back of a cave? I remember we once as a family went to Bear Lake and there was some cave and you go down like four million stairs and you get to the back of this cave and they, what do they do? They turn the lights off. Of course they turn the lights off. And it's palpable. You, can, you, you know there's people there, but you can't see anything. David says, even if I get to the bottom of the cave and I can't see anything, you can see me.
He is a revealer of secrets. He is omniscient. And Daniel worships him for his omniscience, for his all-knowingness. There's a little good news in all of this, too. A little good news in all this. Daniel says, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. He knows what's in the darkness. He knows what's in our heart. He knows all of those things. But the light dwells with him. Back in John chapter 1, we were there just a little bit ago, but let's look at some other characteristics, some other things that we can glean from these statements of truth regarding who God is. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends or doesn't understand it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is speaking of John the Baptist. This was his mission. Then he came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. And if you'll notice that in verse 5, the word light is translated with a lowercase l. And now we find it translated with an uppercase l. There's, this is, there's a person being discussed here. This was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. That has revealed himself to everyone in the world. The book of Romans would say it this way, that we are without excuse. Nobody can legitimately stand before the judgment throne of God and say, listen, I didn't know. He's revealed himself, and he's revealed himself sufficiently that we are without excuse. That's good news. It's good news that there is a, that God is the revealer of secrets of who he is and his plan of redemption for you and I. That he said, listen, let me show you your sinfulness. Let me show you your need for me, and let me show you the way out. Let me show you how you may be saved. In John chapter 12, verse 45 and 46, Jesus is here speaking. This is who the capital L light is, Jesus Christ. And he says, he that sees me sees him that sent me. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. I am come as a light of the world that whoever believes in me would not abide in darkness. And obviously, there's a metaphor being painted here. There's a picture being painted between light and dark, and dark being that death, that separation from God for all eternity, and conscious punishment for our sinfulness. And the light being Jesus Christ, and ultimately the redemption, the salvation that is through his shed blood alone. Whoever believes in me, he says, should not abide or won't continue, you won't live in darkness. He's come to translate us from death to life, from darkness to light. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with with Nicodemus, who is an honest Sadducee. He's an honest Sadducee. He acknowledges, listen, Jesus, nobody can do the things that you're doing unless he is from God, unless he's 
It's how it's how. Nobody can do those things. And Jesus is interacting with him, and he, he doesn't really answer his question, but he gets right to the point. He says, you have to be born again. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, listen, and, and this is the parallel that's being drawn here. You were born in darkness. We were born in sin. That is our natural state. You have to be born again. And he makes the parallel between physical and spiritual birth. And we're making the parallel between natural birth in sinfulness and spiritual birth being translated, brought into the family of God, brought into light. Now, not everybody receives that. In John chapter 3 here, beginning in verse 17, and we all know John 3.16, right? I mean, everybody knows John 3.16. But John 3.17 says, For God sent his, not into the, his Son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he that believes on him is not condemned, right? He's delivered from darkness. He's not condemned, but he that believes on him not is condemned already. It means one of two things, right? You are either for God or you're against him. Our natural state, where we are born, because we are sinners, because we are separated from him, because we are born in darkness, where we're headed naturally is death. That's the long and short of it. We are already condemned when we are born. But he says, listen, my son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to be the answer to the problem of sin that you and I have. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that light is coming into the darkness and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to be reminded of it. They didn't want to talk about the reality, what the truth of Scripture means to them. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or exposed. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We have this light, Jesus being self-existent from John chapter 1. His holiness, his love, his mercy, all those things being revealed in the light. Because it's here in this attribute of light in some respect that God interacts with mankind. To come and show us our need for a Savior and then to be that Savior himself. And Daniel concludes his praise, his worship of who God is with an acknowledgement of God's providence. He concludes it with an acknowledgement of God's providence. I thank thee and praise thee, O God, of my fathers who has made me, given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. He acknowledges this is where it's at. And he says, and as he gets into this and he speaks with Nebuchadnezzar, he says, listen, I don't interpret this dream. I don't have the wisdom or the ability or the smarts to do this. But God, who is a revealer of secrets, he reveals it to you. He acknowledges the providence of God in this. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. And this is we conclude this morning. Am I Daniel? 
or am I Israel? We talked about it this morning in Sunday school just a little bit, right? That here is God, and he's delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. He's brought them to the Red Sea, providentially led them there specifically. And what do they do? Well, you brought us out here so that we can die. And Moses says, Lord, what are we going to do? And he says, put your staff in the water, parts the Red Sea, they cross through. In his deliverance, not only does he grant them deliverance, but he removes the hardship by obliterating the entire Egyptian army. We have both. And then the nation of Israel continues on and there's no water. Or at least the only water around is bitter. And what does he do? He says, well, listen, Moses, take the tree, put it in the water. The water becomes sweet, provides water for everyone. Over and over and over, he proves his faithfulness to them. He proves his compassion. He proves his ability to intervene on their behalf for his glory, for his honor. And then again, as we come through this, and we get to Exodus 17, which is kind of what we were looking at this morning. And here is the nation of Israel, and they're saying, Moses, you let us out here to murder us. And they convene this trial, so to speak, and God himself takes the, takes the seat and says, listen, I'm the one on trial here. And Moses strikes the rock, and out flows water. And there's a picture of Christ in all of that. But over and over, they see God's hand of deliverance. They see his hand of provision. They see his hand of protection. They see his hand, period. And what do they do? Woe is me. God's not here. God's not there. God's... He's somehow against us. Yet here is Daniel in the midst of the first trial that we encounter him in, and he seeks the Lord. And what is his immediate response to the answer of God? blessing for who the Lord is. And in fact, Daniel went to the Lord. Why? Because he trusted him for his faithfulness. And as we even look in Daniel chapter one, and here he is, we just, we don't want to defile ourselves. We don't want to exalt or to become dependent upon anything but the Lord. Therefore, give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. We see throughout the entire book of Daniel up to this point, and we'll see it continue on, his dependence and his trust in the Lord. So the question is this, am I Daniel or am I Israel? And our, our existence is probably less like the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, their clothes didn't wear out. They had all the food they needed. They had all the water they needed. God took care of them. He protected them from other invading nations. Our existence is not that hard by comparison. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, obviously God is here retelling the law. He's reiterating things to the generation of Israel that's going to actually go into the promised land. And he gives them some very uh, clear instruction. He says these things, and, and, and we all as parents, right, we've all read these verses, and we know 
Hear, O Lord, the Israel, our God, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them, teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. In fact, go so far, he says, put them, bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates, so that whether coming or going, sitting or standing, what are we continually focused upon? The things that God has said. The things that God has said. His faithfulness, his proving of who he is his heart toward you and toward me. He continues on, though. Our existence is much more like the nation of Israel who goes into the promised land. Verse 10, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, and wells dig, which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees, which you didn't plant, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware. Lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. That's our existence, a lot closer to it. It's pretty abundant. Here's a nation of Israel, and they come in, and God has provided everything for them, a land that is indeed flowing with milk and honey. And when they come in, God says, listen, be careful, like Daniel, who was careful, and said, listen, I don't want to defile myself or create dependence upon anything but the Lord. Be careful, because when you come in, and everything is smooth, and everything is plentiful, that you don't forget. You don't forget the faithfulness of God who brought you from Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who provided for you for 40 years, who was near you and dwelt among you there on the mercy seat, who made provision so that we might have right relationship with one another. He says, be careful that you don't forget. Because when all of a sudden for you and I, right, when when, when the roof leaks on the house that we didn't build or the well goes dry on the, that we didn't dig or the table isn't full with the things that we didn't plant, woe is me. What's God doing? And I'm not saying that we are entitled necessarily to anything like that, but what I'm saying is that when whatever, for whatever reason God may remove or allow those things to be removed from us, our heart is quick to turn. Am I Daniel or am I Israel? We have to combat false worship. False worship praises God for the things that we have, not for who he is. God said to the woman of the well in John chapter 4, there's a time coming. We're not going to worship on that mountain or that mountain. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth. We're going to worship him for who he is what he's revealed of himself. And to combat false worship, like I said, if you have 
problems of trust, so to speak, in the Lord, we need to address our understanding of who he is. To combat false worship, Psalm 119.11, right? This was a memory verse last week. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's this constant reminder, just like the nation of Israel, when they sat down, when they stood up, when they went in and out of the house and in and out of the gate, when it was written on their hand, this is what God has said. This is what God has done. This is his faithfulness. This is the cloud of witnesses that surrounds me. Therefore, I will put off that sin that has so easily beset me. I will trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your goodness to us. We praise you, Lord, that you are sovereignly engaged with your creation, that you are moving in and around us. Lord, I praise you that the extent of your concern for us is such that you would give your son while we were yet sinners to show your love for us. That you would, Lord, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9, that you would give unto us your son. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We rejoice for the goodness of these things. We, we praise you, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, I pray for your grace, as it says in uh, Hebrews 12, that we might serve you acceptably, that we might be accepting of those things, that we might take the time and invest in the word that we might know who you are and as you revealed yourself. Lord, as your word comes in, Lord, may it do the work that it's intended to do in our hearts and minds, preserving us from sinning against you, giving us clarity we might worship you in truth. God, as we have time now to sing, to praise uh, you, Lord, for who you are, for what you have done on our behalf, I pray, Lord, that it would be a response to the truths of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Lord, we give thanks. We praise you. Amen.